Welcome to Backlogs. I'm Serene Chen. And I'm Charlene Shepherdson. We hope you've enjoyed listening to all the past episodes in Backlogs pilot series. This is the wrap-up episode of the pilot series, where we recap and reflect on the actionable takeaways from what we've learned from the many conversations we've had. We're excited to introduce this episode's guest shortly. But before that, we'd just like to refresh your memories on what Backlogs is all about and reflect on its objectives, see how far we've come from episode zero. Backlogs, as you know, is an arts management podcast series where we delve into the histories and the evolving practices of arts management in Singapore. For this pilot series, we focused specifically on the time period of the 1980s to 1995, an exciting time for the local arts ecosystem because of the crucial work of arts managers in the increasing professionalization of the arts and cultural industries in Singapore. We will unpack what professionalization means with our guest very soon. For this pilot series, we also focus on the fields of theatre and the literary arts. The first five episodes were hosted by myself, in which I had conversations with arts managers in the prominent theatre companies of the 80s and 90s, as well as arts managers who worked on developing the infrastructure for the growing theatre scene. The last two episodes were hosted by myself, who spoke with key intermediaries in the literary arts world, which included librarians and book publishers who played a significant role in the capability development of literary arts workers, as well as fostering a reading culture. We've chosen a special guest for this episode. He's been working in the arts in various capacities since 1990. He has taken on many arts managerial roles, as well as artistic roles over the years. He was also very recently a nominated Member of Parliament representing the arts and culture sectors in the Parliament of Singapore. Please welcome Mr. Kok Heng Luan. Thank you. <laughs> wow, got this kind of I know. We get more and more high tech. <laughs> we get more and more connected. Welcome, Heng Luan, to um, Backlogs. Thanks, Serene and Charlene. So one of the main reasons why we have chosen to produce this episode with him is that he has not only worked with many of our previous guests through the 1990s, but he's also carried forward the legacy into the era of the 2000s and present day. His career has intersected with those of some of our previous guests. In 1990, he joined the Ministry of Community Development as an officer. In 1991, he was a program executive at the then newly formed substation at 45 Armenian Street. A year after that, he joined the necessary stage as their business manager and later became their resident director. In 1990, he also founded Drama Box, a socially engaged and non-profit theatre company known for creating works that inspire dialogue, reflection and change. Most people know him as the Artistic Director of Drama Box, a post he has held for over two decades since 1998 and recently stepped down from. Heng Luan and I met actually in the mid-1990s, Heng Luan, when you were in TNS. Okay, so just want to get that out of the way and <laughs> uh, give our listeners some history and some context. And of course, I also know that Heng Luan actually studied mathematics at the beginning, right? So we're going to talk a little bit about that, okay? You actually majored in mathematics at the National University of Singapore. So could you maybe just give our listeners some idea of how you entered the arts in Singapore? I think one of the very important things that happened in the 80s was there was a lot of Chinese, or a lot of LDDS in schools. And uh, those schools where the LDDS would also include drama, you will realise that that's where we actually do our practice or we learn our practice from. 
So when I was in NUS, there was a Chinese society and there was a drama group, and I was in the drama group, and that's where I learned a lot there. Or I had to invent a lot of things when I was there. But we didn't invent from nothing. In fact, if you look at the history of Chinese language theatre, there was a lot of activities in schools in the eighties. And uh, they were sometimes also, if I'm not wrong, conducted by uh, some of the practitioners who had, you know, did work in their 60s and 70s. So whatever they had at that time, there's a lot of what we call as qi huotong, that means working collectively. So that kind of collectivism actually could be seen in a lot of how this Chinese LDDs are organized in Singapore. And I'm more comfortable speaking in Mandarin and actually I was... Born in a family where I only spoke dialects, so joining the Chinese LDS was more comfortable for me as a you know individual, and that's where I actually start to do a bit of acting, organizing. And LDDS being the short form for literary, literary drama, drama, debating, debating society. society. And I think maybe what was the precursor to the LDDS in the university were the LDDS in, in the. JCs in JCs and in the yeah. in secondary school. Mm. So when I was in uh, secondary school, that was that was, should be between seventy nine, starting from seventy nine, and I was in the LDDS and I learned calligraphy, harmonica, performed crosstalk, performed poetry recital, mm-hmm. very structured, stifling kind of poetry recital <laughs> of that time. <laughs> very different from what you get nowadays. So yeah, those were the things that we were involved in in the seventies. Or it is, yeah. Mm-hmm. But how come math and this was this your outlet from math? Was joining the <laughs> LDDS uh, an mean, outlet for you? Maybe it should be seen the other way, right? Uh, doing math actually seems the most practical thing in time that you need to do. I mean, during that time, the things people would be asking would be, are you doing a subject that will ensure that you at least have some career prospective? So you first think about what you want to study rather than what CCA you want to do. And uh, that's always an afterthought. And mm. I've never thought that I would actually work in theatre full-time. Never, ever. Mm. Uh, I've thought of working in the bank. I've thought of being teachers and everything. But never that I'll think that my life turned out this way. And that's a really good segue into um, our discussion on arts managers. So just want to try and understand a little bit about what were some of the forces, I suppose, during that time that kind of brought you into the area of arts management and uh, theatre work? I think my my three years in university, I I feel as if I live two different lives, right? So there is the everyday you're going to attend lectures and tutorials, which most of the time I skip the lectures, <laughs> attend the tutorials. So famous until all my friends are like, "Hey, you're here for lecture today." And then in the afternoon, I'll be at the arts and social science faculty area and will be doing a lot of organizing, organizing competitions, planning, and everything for the drama group. And I think that sort of uh, prep you, or in a sense, that make you think that this is quite an enjoyable work. You know, you really enjoy doing it. And when I started to look for jobs, I considered teaching, but my honestly, my dad says that. No future because either you end up as a principal or nothing. Then he said, "Go and join another ministry." So I saw、uh, an ad that says a cultural officer for MCD during that time. So I applied and I was asked to go for an interview. And I went for the interview thinking I would become a cultural officer, but realized that there wasn't an opening there. But what they asked me was, "Why don't you become a community development officer?" And then you can organize activities, cultural activities for the community. That sounds enticing, right? Interesting, right? So I thought, yes, I took it up. But of course, it didn't happen that way. I spent more time doing 
other kind of work, which is not important here. But what happened was that by then, the kind of friendship we made in the Chinese society, in the Chinese drama group, came together and everyone said, let's form a theatre company or a theatre group. And during that time, I think that would be the late 80s, early 90s. That's where you know that the English theatre was like very active. You have TNS, you have action theatre and all those groups that you have mentioned in backlogs. Mm -hmm. And I think that sort of also made us feel that, hey, maybe we could do something. Well, we know about practice. We've seen practices work. We've seen uh, people like the Southern Arts, you know, some of their work. So we thought that maybe we can add on to it and just continue to do what we want. And then maybe we all will grow all together with our kids and have this little group of people gathering. That's what we call as Tong Ren Ju Chang. In Chinese, that means people of the same interest coming together. And that was how it turns out. Then I, I think when you start to form a company or a, a group, then I, I remember there was also the beginning of substation. And I don't know what I did, but I went to volunteer for the opening of the substation. So I was one of the crew there. I helped out in the opening show and I remember Pao Kun telling me, and I didn't know Pao Kun then, but you know, of course you know who he is. And then uh, he'll say, do you know anything about music? I said, not really. Would you want to pick a music for the opening of that moment when Wong Kan Sing was hitting the gong? I was like, okay. So I went to the library, which in backlog number six, you know, where you really realize that the library really has a lot of other collections. So there's music. I really spend time listening to classical music. You know. Which library is this? I was at the National Library. I was at the National Library. So I went to the National Library. I just going through all those things. You know, there were all those materials there. And then finally, I picked something. I went to Pao Kun and I said, Pao Kun, is this okay? He looked at me and said, okay, can. It was actually uh, Wagner's, what's the piece? The one that Wagner in uh, Space Odyssey. What do you call it? Never mind, we go and find yeah, it. We go and find it. Here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, and then I was also the stage, uh, I was the crew helping Ren Baoxian, who was like a national treasure from China, a, a wonderful actor and a good storyteller. And he was performing Pao Kun's Coffin as well as Pao Kun's new work called The Eagle and the Cat. So there was a new monologue. So I was assisting him behind. So that started in a way whereby I got to know people in that community. Yeah, And then when uh, Substation had opening, I then decided to try after a year in a MCD. So I guess my question is, as you were entering substation, what was your understanding of what arts management is? I think, like I said, you know, during the Chinese society, right, you, you just have to organise everything. So I was like the chairperson of the group. So we had a drama competition. So you literally have to get people to come together and say, you want to put up a production in order to compete. You have to help them to organize. You have to encourage them. You have to then set up the system, allowing them to have rehearsals and everything. And not only that, I also had to plan lessons to prep them so that you know, they can be trained or they have, would have some skills when they want to direct their play or act in the play or then finally put out a production at LT13 NUS? In, in NUS. And LT13 was really very simple at that time, but you still need lightings and things like that. I think when I went into substation, the idea here was that, okay, it is the job of trying to organize and put things together so that things can happen. As a program executive, then uh, my job was really to 
try to put things together. But there was other there were other things that I learned then over there. Like we have to do a lot of publicity, marketing, and the printing of publicity material. That's why I know. But it's more of you need to then have another kind of things to consider. That is beyond、uh, the people whom you're working with. You have the public,、mm. and that's actually a very different kind of imagination. That then the work has a relationship with the public, and how the public respond to the work becomes part of the things that you need to take care of. Very interesting because now we are talking also about that reaction, that kind of public、mm-hmm. engagement, which definitely becomes something that characterizes our vocabulary when we're talking about the arts and the relevance of arts in society currently as well.、Um, Heng Luan, just wondering, since you've had such a rich experience and entry into the arts, what would be your most memorable experience in terms of arts management from your early days? Would you be able to share one or two? <laughs> I've been trying to recall. In the earlier days, I'm referring to between eighties to ninety-five. Yeah, I think working in substation was really interesting. I think Hanjuan's sharing in backlog talk about the kind of time we had. Yeah, we we sometimes have to go there early in the morning at eight a.m. to be on radio show. You know that? Yeah. So so there was a radio station, a Chinese radio station, where every Can't remember. Was it Wednesday? We'll go live to actually publicize the kind of events that will happen in a substation. Every Wednesday, I can't remember. Or Friday, you have to be there early in the morning. And the previous night, you may be just running some programs until like eleven p.m. We didn't have Mrs. Chua. Chua. Yes, Mrs. Chua. At that time, we were the one who had to close the door. We had to lock up. We had to do everything from locking up to doing all the cleaning. Sometimes, on a Sunday, there may not be any cleaner, and you will find us actually sweeping the floor.、Mm. When you work in substation, that was paukaliaola, like what Serene has mentioned in 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 backlogs. At at the same time, because you're working with so many different kind of people, I remember there was one night there was a pingtan, which is a very traditional Suzhou performance happening at the Guinness Theatre. And then there was a very avant-garde exhibition that was happening at the gallery, and then there was a rehearsal,、uh, a preparation for a rock band that happens the next day on Sunday. And sometimes Sunday you have a morning from ten a.m. kind, you know. Then they have the rock concert all the way to the evening. And there were times, so so this is that kind of where, moment where you know you suddenly like everything is is happening. Diversity. I mean, that、mm. was really what it was.、Right. And I do also remember one of the days, one of the. Time was by I think it was on a Saturday and there was a concert and the rave that time was actually to do wall banging the kind of dance where you bang onto the wall <laughs> and then I remember the next morning I went to the toilet to check on the toilet there were actually blood trails apparently people injured themselves and there was like my God <laughs> blood trails blood, blood trails. trails people sort of you know when they were in a concert they were really high but those were the times that was very exciting there yeah. And of course, when I was in TNS, I think the most unforgettable moment was how, as a company, we have to manage the crisis that time when the press sort of accused the company of being linked to Marxist belief system. And I think that time managing that was really difficult because how would the press write about it? If this press write about it, would we be able to appeal to another press to present a different possibilities? How do we manage the schools who? Have been supporting the necessary stage for so many years. Actually, had no problems with the work that we do, and how to assure them, you know, that article contains only allegations and not true. And we were still very committed to what we were doing. 
And, and there were a lot of this kind of management. And not only that, internally, how do you manage people inside the company, knowing that we are actually facing a huge crisis that may affect the future of the company? I think that period of about half, actually, until even after the event, I think it's close to about a year of actually managing or, or working with the company and trying to manage everything. And we had a festival show to go on. And we... Were you involved in Three Years in the Life and Death? No, oh, no I wasn't. No. Okay, so we were involved. So we even have a festival show going on. We had to just keep our sanity. We have to focus on our tasks and continue through that. So those were actually quite uh, difficult moments, actually. As someone who, who was in a company, uh, I was the... Uh, what was I there still? I was still the uh, business, business manager. manager. Mm-hmm. And then I was on my way transiting to become the uh, artistic director of the Theatre for Youth branch. And, and, and that was, but we had to manage all those things in the company. It sounds like the role grew right in front of your eyes, where you handle things from the programming, to the funding, to the press relations, to also your stakeholders, the ones who would be buying tickets. There's a lot of repercussion on reputation, because that would also then determine whether or not the audience continues to come and continues to believe in in the work. As mentioned earlier, We chose to focus on the time period of 1980 to 1995 because this was a time of professionalisation of the role of the arts manager in Singapore. What this meant was that the term arts manager began to be a formal and a full-time job title in many arts groups and companies, and the arts manager was behind the development of the infrastructure that supported art making. In particular, as the first two episodes with Arun Mahilnan and Tisa Ho, as well as the sixth episode with R. Ramachandran and Michelle Heng have shown, this was a period of the growth of public support for artwork, including the beginnings of the Singapore Arts Festival, the release of our first cultural policy, the report of the Advisory Council on Culture and the Arts, and the growth of state support for the arts, including the conceptualization of a National Performing Arts Centre, the formation of National Arts Council and the rolling out of arts assistance schemes such as the Annual Grant Scheme and the Arts Housing Scheme. In episode 2, we also saw that in August 1985, the Cultural Affairs Division at the Ministry of Community Development ran what was possibly the first arts administration course in Singapore for staff from the public sector, including the National Theatre Trust, as well as staff from the arts groups. We also saw the development of state support for specific sectors. For instance, in episode 2, we heard about the semi-residential status in theatre scheme, which provided eligible artists and arts groups up to 12 days annual rent-free use of one of the Ministry of Community Development's theatres for rehearsal and stage performances, as well as priority booking of theatres a year in advance. This enabled theatre practitioners and groups to produce new local productions, But this was also because of the expectation to stage a production every quarter, or at least half of which should be new and preferably local works. In episode 6, we saw the growth of Singapore's reading and writing culture, catalyzed by the many initiatives of the National Library, such as the deliberate growth of the Asian Children's Collection and the expansion of branch libraries around the island. 
Before listening to our episodes, I'm just wondering, and, and then now having listened to all the episodes uh, before this one, what sort of thoughts came to you in terms of the role, the essential role of the arts manager? Is it as custodian? Is it as defender? These are some terms that I'm thinking of, but perhaps we can hear from you. I, I think as I was going through all the episodes, like Lucilla's episodes was very interesting. And actually not only Lucilla, you hear it constantly either from Arun, Mr. Arun, uh, or uh, Tisa, or even when you were talking about Hedwig Anwar's contribution to, the, uh, to arts management. The word has always been trailblazer. I think in the earlier years, and there was also something about somehow everything comes together nicely. You know, there were so many people joining forces and doing things together. Actually, my take was that I'm not sure whether we are most creative in that time. But what I felt was that during those times when there was nothing, you just have to invent the wheels. You have to find ways to make things work. You listen to what Lucilla says, it literally had to make things work. If you listen to what Clarice has said, when there was nothing, you just create. And that's why we were, in a way, building our own systems, building our way, our pathway ahead. And with people agreeing and being interested in what you do, we all come together. And I think there was this opportunity, like what Tisa always said, right? Oh, I was there right at the right time. And I think in the late 80s to the early 90s, that's where things were already percolating on, on the ground. And then that's where then when opportunities open, people come together and then that makes things happen. And people became creative. They became enabler. They started to make things happen rather than saying that they were trying to custodian something. Because there was no boundaries in a way, right? No one said this could not be done. If you listen to how Tissa had conversation with Lee Wycock, right? So he said, can we do this? And then Wycock said, yes, no really you want to do and, and Tisa was it no, it won't cost a lot of money like Juliana said no. and then there it goes so the, the boundaries were not drawn and so people started to try to push things out so there's no nothing about I'm protecting anything but actually I'm creating I'm trying to define things I think that goes also if you look at policies uh, this is my take uh, I'm giving a lot of credits to us or to all the wonderful policy all the wonderful arts administrators of that time and managers of that time was that I think the policies were plain catching up because we were creating the policies were catching up and trying to define what this new thing is how to define things how to ensure that if money is given how are they accounted for and because these people were creating new ways of doing things right and, and they were creating new products so the policies was really trying to play catch up so the KPIs were defined according to what either theatre companies or, or, or people who are there think that will help them. So it's really a very different kind of ballgame. So I would think that in the earlier years, they were actually really trying to define and creating possibilities. But when policies are much more developed and the policies start to play a different kind of relationship that they are trying to see whether to support or whether to make them accountable, then the relationship change. So once that change, that means the people who works under this policy, who have to, uh, so that means the arts administrators, that the managers that are in various companies, then have to also same at this time, learn to negotiate with these policies. Then come in, 
the role of being custodian, protecting the integrity of the companies. And, and I think that's how it evolves over the years. That's from my perspective. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like that change or that shift from you know, policy playing catch-up to policy coming first, do you think that's also changed the role in which the art manager then manages or like the professionalization of the actual companies itself? Like, for example, how the role of the arts managers actually develop, for example, within schemes or not? Yeah, I think definitely. I, I, I do think that in the end now, uh, a lot of the uh, managers are talking about, so what does this company want? So the art scenes are defined by companies. That's for me interesting. I mean, going back to what the king was talking about when he was talking about publishing, right? So am I publishing books or am I publishing authors? Mm. I think there's something for us to unpack and think about. So are we protecting companies which legally is actually a legal entity, but that not, doesn't necessarily mean that it's an arts company, right? So where is the arts in this? And I, I don't think it's the fault of the arts administrators and managers. I think you have alluded in, uh, to these issues quite a lot of time over these seven episodes of about how government policies and companies were dependent on government uh, funding actually shaping the way then we see how we run the theatre company, how we manage artists, how we run things. So now, every time, you will be hearing the artist saying, I want to do this, but then the SMM said it's like that, right? In this mm-hmm. COVID time. So you realise that then when the policies are there and then the artists have to run around along with the policies. And I think that's how it had been for the last, especially the last 15 years, I think. Yeah. Another way to reframe it would be to, are we putting the artist first? Are we putting the art first? Or are we sort of putting the company policies first? Because it does seem as if the role of the arts manager has been very much to harmonise with the grand structure, policy structure in the last 15 years, as you've brought out. Let us talk a little bit about the impact of this on the can-do spirit or the must-do spirit that we were just talking about in the 80s to 95. I'll go back to both Clarice and, and Lucilla's uh, as well as Han Juan's uh, interview where you, you realise that during that time, the role of an arts manager were less specialised. I think you've noted that now in, in your episode zero, Serene was talking about how sometimes even a play read had 30 people sitting in the same room. Mm. Yeah, and they all play different roles. The specialization of the roles on one hand is good because everyone becomes better at the job, but there is a difference also when someone, if in the early days whereby we just try to work together to make things happen. And there's no rules, so we try to invent ways that can make things happen. And take, for example, the thick skin thing that I think was Rizzler was talking about, just be have to be thick skin, you asked and things may be done. Now, it's slightly different. Now, actually, the, the, the key word is actually engagement. Mm-hmm. We're talking about how to engage people rather than now we just don't care. Like, we just ask. Like if now, if I go out and put on the Facebook and say, hey, I need some help like that. Lah. Some people can help me and do this. I don't think it will work here. Mm. There, there are so many, much more things you will start to be thinking that, okay, is this a fair way? of actually uh, getting people to do work in the arts. Uh, will they be paid? How would they be credited? And all those things are part of the puzzle of how these things has happened. 
last time it would be different, right? It would be like, let's just get this thing done. Mm. So strangely, the sense of getting a task done were more important then. But now, though it seems that we would say that I want to get this task done, actually, it seems to be I want to get my duty done properly, my role done properly. And it's different mm. because uh, I, I think it's the, the perspective has changed. I'm not going to say which is better, but I think it, it, it speaks of a different time that we're in. Mm. And that's why I think I was thinking about, we look at the literary scenes, right? I think King has sort of made a very interesting uh, observations of how Sinlit stations and Sinlit has actually evolved. And he said that uh, that speaks something of the time. And I actually wonder, you know, I hope there was some more unpacking about what he meant by that. From my perspective, the idea of engagement has actually changed a lot of how we work now. I'm thinking in terms of in the beginning, <laughs> and the beginning not really being right at the beginning, but just marking the 80s. If we say that this was driven by passion and hobbyists, there was a sense of very heightened ownership and creativity and in a way, freedom because a lot of things were not set in stone, at least in terms of policy. And also in terms of money, it was scarce then. In some sense, it is as scarce now. Uh, however, like what you said here, there, there seem to be added responsibilities with the professionalization of the entire industry. So just wondering, Charlene, maybe we can chime in here, you know, when we've listened to the stories of the arts managers working in the 80s to 95, did you gain some insights as to what was and what is now? I mean, I think I echo what Hingran was also saying in terms of it definitely seemed to be more of, I think, filling of a need. There was recognition that this thing did not exist, but this thing needed to come to fruition and therefore we will make this happen. And because there was no precedent to it, you could create anything from it. Whereas I think like for me as an arts manager in this time, it's about creativity within the limits that have been placed with you. So you can still be creative, but I think having limits also forces you to be in some ways more creative with what's in front of you. And so I think the impulse is a bit different in that sense as well. In listening to like Michelle and Mr. Rama talking as well, Aking as well as Ms. Lim Lee Kok, I think also there seemed to be a lot more of hunger back then in terms of seeing this art or this form of reading or this form of consumption of art because there was such a dearth of it that once it came up, that's why everyone came in to help because they recognised it immediately. Mm. Whereas I think now in a time where there's so much art around us, it's oversaturation. And mm. then so I think the challenges of finding things has evolved a little bit because then Maybe that's where that engagement thing that Hingman is talking about comes in. I think I definitely agree with what you're saying here. I think I also see it a little bit from the personal. What Lucilla mentioned earlier on about, she was giving some tips, right, about to arts managers and things like that. And I think it was very clear to me that as a, a successful arts manager, however you define that, I think one of the important things that really came through was to always know the goal of the hustle. Right. If I'm doing this, what is my goal? What is in it for me as an individual? Which was one of the reasons why I think, despite the fact that it was always unstable finances, right? whether it is for the, the play that you're putting up or the book that you're publishing, it's also as much of whether or not you are going to be able to pay your own bills and things like that. 
So the goal of the hustle. The other thing that I thought was really interesting was listening to the interviewees and understanding how small, in a way, Singapore is because you hear the same names and they crisscross in terms of the art forms. And it felt as if there was very authentic sort of community building. I don't know whether or not I'm over analyzing this as well, but in the period of the 80s to 95 as well, I felt that it came at a time where the basics of nation building, right, from 65 were kind of in place. And and therefore, there was a little bit more room for people to consider, okay, the arts. Let's think about this thing called you know, our minds, our quality of life, the pursuit of literature, the understanding of ourselves as a new society, holding up that mirror through plays, through books, through stories. Just wondering whether or not you want to chime in on this. I think from 90s to the 80s, yes, that's where we started to progress. And I think that new generation of leader who in a way promised more, to be more open, more consultative, also set context or a kind of background you know, that all these things may happen. I do agree that during that time that the communities are, because it's smaller, actually we know each other somehow, right? Compared to now, this community is so huge. There's so many invisible presence. And I think we need ought to do more to acknowledge this invisible presence. But during that time, because they're so small and there wasn't already a lot of work around, so what we need to do is actually support each other mm. in order to get things done. And I'll think that during that time, when you live in an exciting time, uh, what happened was that you never think about that in that way. You just realize that you, know, you just, just keep working, we keep working. And you build that relationship, build and build and build. And that's why you see when they're so close-knitted, you see their relationships or their comradeships continue over the years. They became friends. Mm. They didn't become colleagues. Someone recently was talking to me, one of the younger practitioners, and was saying that she saw that generation, the earlier generation, very differently because we seem to have a kind of a comradeship that is beyond just merely a kind of work relationship, that there was a kind of care that happens in some way. And of course, I was a bit like, really? I thought you all still go out a lot. You are very... I thought you'd be... I, Honestly, I don't go out as often with Elvin, you know, as you think so, you know. <laughs> no, I only meet him whenever there is something there. Sorry, Elvin, we're still good friends, okay? <laughs> <laughs> but what I'm saying here is that I guess those years of working together build a tacit acknowledgement of each other's presence as part of a community. That's so interesting. I, I When you said, oh, I don't go out with Elvin as much, I it made me think about what were the avenues for socialising that I remember anyway? And I think also some of those spaces are gone, right? You mentioned the National Library before. I'm mean, At least in its central location, it was a very homely place at Stamford Road and people would go in and you would bump into people, right? And then if you want to talk loudly, because you cannot talk loudly in the library, you will go to just below the Banyan tree at, at, at uh, S11 and, and then you would catch up there. But a lot of these spaces also simultaneously started to disappear from Singapore. When I look at SMU, I think actually of the football fields that were there. And mm, uh, mm. you remember? There yes, were football yes, yes, fields. Yes. Yes. <laughs> This would be a good point, actually, to look at backlogs 
and our focus, right? While Backlogs focuses on the arts manager, it's also very much about the arts ecosystem, the arts spaces, the formal, the informal spaces. And while tracing the growth of arts managers and the arts companies, uh, such as TNS and Theatre Works and the substation, even Landmark Books, we also contextualize the development within the larger ecosystem. For instance, we tried to provide information about the theatre production staged uh, during the 1980s to 1995, as well as the venues used. And it brings to the forefront a question that I think you already alluded to, right? If they were, if they were co-workers and they were friends, what do we have to show for it? What are our cultural assets? <laughs> well, the theatre companies that we have are our cultural assets at this moment. I think the literary scenes, uh, all, the, uh, all the publications that we have over the years, and of course the scripts and everything, those are important cultural assets. And I don't think we pay enough attention to this kind of cultural assets. We keep thinking, now when you talk about publishing, uh, the, the first thing which a king's father pointed him to was all the inventories of kept books, right? It sounds scary, right? But honestly, when you come to think of it, they are so important, no? If they weren't published, they wouldn't be there. When Lee Kok was talking about the Xiao Ren Su, those each page of illustration, my first exposure to theatre was actually the Xiao Ren Su in the 70s, when in the 60s, groups like PPAS, Practice Performing Arts Schools, and the Children's uh, Theatre Troupe, uh, Ertong Jisa, and the youth theatre troupe, teenagers, they actually publish a lot of all these Xiaoren Su based on productions that they did. So like, for example, they would do a, like a Tongko Sen He Lang, which is a story of this guy who is so benevolent that if, even if a mosquito beat him, uh, he would say, hey, continue biting me. You know? They performed these pieces and then they took pictures of it and then they would write a short paragraph and they then become what they call Xiaoren Su. And I grew up on those things. They are all cultural assets that sort of influence the way I see theatre. Currently, the, the understanding of this asset sometimes is that they are with stage, placed there, and nobody would, would want to touch them. But the act of documenting them, the act of importantly, uh, whether through what medium, the act of allowing them to be accessed, allowing them to be critiqued, allowing them to be written about, is one of the most important cultural assets that we should build and must continue building. So that's one. The other one, of course, is the kind of a talent and people we have developed over the years, whether it's in the creative field, the design, in arts management. And I think these are important assets that we need to keep on honing and keep on you know, developing. That bit, actually, I do have a grab, which I will to talk about it now or later. <laughs> yeah, I mean, why don't you just talk about it now? Yeah, I think in the earlier years, 80s to the 90s, right, there was those years whereby developing company, theatre companies, and arts manager running all these companies were actually the most important thing that we need to sort out. Right? I remember we all were trained in some way or another. So I remember I was also sent by a British council to to, to UK to attend seminar, to learn how to bring in audience and things like that. A lot of the uh, training were very much about how to build the companies. But if you look at cultural assets, besides clear companies, what other things do we need? We need actually spaces. We need spaces for productions to be 
show. We need spaces where events can happen, where literary events can happen, where dance and whatever, all these artistic events can happen. And to run all these events, you need another group of a kind of an arts manager that is different from running a theatre company. Mm. So at this moment, what I feel is most lacking is that we don't have that group of managers working outside of the bureaucrats. Because if we can't run our own venues, we don't know how to run our own venues, we take away this capacity and capability to build possibilities for ourselves. We need centres, we need spaces so that we can create interactions. We can create business opportunities. And this, all this is a kind of a, a capacity that needs to be built actually within the community. But now currently, all these are actually kept within uh, certain organisations that are government-related. Mm. And they operate in a very different setup, like AHL. And I think we actually need to shift as much of all these capacities and all these possibilities to the community so that more people, and they should be run actually independently by people, learn from their mistake and they become better. In a way, we had a few missed opportunities. We had missed opportunities in substation. Instead of helping our substation to grow, we expected substation to grow by itself. And more restrictions were being placed in the end substation and up what they are now. Or we also have seen you no know, venues like Center 42, whereby they were trying to run this organization such that it is a place where people can gather and in some way continue to survive. Instead of trying to solve the problems of how to keep this kind of uh, structure workable, the easiest way for the bureaucrats was actually to take away the ownership and let them run it because then they were, in a way, uh, they say, take away the burden from the community. Actually, we need these burdens for us to learn. We need to take up these challenges. So I think nowadays, the whole idea of the arts management has been very much focused on learn to run your theatre company well. Keep it, make sure it survives. But going into the future, this ecosystem cannot be just based on all this organisation anymore. We have more and more freelancers. Who are taking care of all these freelancers? We need more independent producers. But independent producers can't create work and then produce the work in a venue if there were no venue support. And in, in a way now, because the way the venue are being run, if there were more independent venue, you can actually see more producers actually having better relationships with these venues mm. and then create opportunities for freelance artists. So we are lacking of space as well as managers who can understand, working on the ground, the limitations of what it means to run, organize, and able a project. One anecdote. There was a very senior NAC officer. She was at a very high level. And then when she retired, she started helping up arts group. So one day, she came to my office in Chinatown. And she said, Okay. Then he said, can you help me do something? I said, what? I need to print. I said, print? Photostat? Come, 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 come. Come to my office. And then she wanted to do the photostat because she was helping another arts organization and the printer had problem and mm. she didn't know how to manage it. Mm. 
So she told me, working in NEC, you're now working with you guys, working in a group. Now I understand where the problem is. When I was in NEC, if I have a problem with my fax machine, if I have a problem with my internet, I call up the computer services and they solve my problem. If I have a printing problem, I'll say, hey, the toner don't have. Can you go and sort it out? But now, if I run a theater company, I actually need to make sure that the toner must be there because not all organizations can be like a 100 to 200 people of manpower, right? So she then realized that it is very different when you're really, really working on the ground. Unlike when you are a bureaucrat where you actually have a huge system behind you, invisible system supporting you. Okay, enough complaints. <laughs> no, I mean, I think that there's a lot of relevance in that. And in fact, one of the issues that we also want to look at in terms of backlogs and how we will continue to develop this podcast series is also to point out what are some persisting issues and topics that were raised in our pilot that will continue to plague our arts ecosystem, right? And this is looking at 1995 to the early 2000s, and even from 2000s all the way here to what we call affectionately the COVID period. This is like the, the COVID generation, the, the COVID period. Because of course, uh, there's a whole bit of digitalization, right? Is that the new frontier? Is that the, does that sound the death knell for real engagement? These are all questions that we can possibly ask. Charlie, want to weigh in on some persisting issues or topics raised? I think some of the things that definitely has come up is, I think hanging on much earlier on in this episode, you were also talking a little bit about the mental health and as arts manager, having to kind of manage that for your staff as well while you're going through certain difficulties. I think that's something that's still persisting today. And I think like in previous episodes, pay has been alluded to quite a lot as well. So I think that's something else. And that's also kind of linked towards mental health as well, right? Having quality of life and how that affects how you manage something. That's interesting, you know. I think that if I had a pet project, not sure that I would be able to see it through, but I would probably be interested in a survey as to who was part of the arts industry before as an arts manager, but have left. <laughs> and what reasons prompted the departure? Some of them do return. For example, Clarice, right? And she cites going into teaching as one very natural area that she went into. And then now she has come back to, to working as a production manager in a freelance capacity. That's one. The other thing I suppose here, which Heng uh, already mentioned, is that it seems as if formality and a structure is what we term the arts industry. And I think while an industry is good for sustaining livelihoods and jobs, it it almost feels as if you don't have a platform as a freelancer. So it could be a freelance director, a freelance actor, a freelance uh, playwright. You almost have no home or you don't have a regular enough platform to be able to work. And I would be definitely interested to see who are those um, similar freelance producers, freelance art makers who would be able to fill those gaps. It just feels as if there's something missing in that ecosystem to talk about people who, who do not actually belong to a formal structure. Mm. Mm. And I think that's one of the reasons why I was so excited to be part of this Backlogs episode, like, uh, series as well. Because one, as an arts manager, it can feel very lonely, right? Whether you're like in the middle, middle management, or if you're just talking to people. Because we, like actors and all, talk to each other all the time, right? But arts managers, especially if you're within companies, you don't necessarily always talk about the process to each other. And I think when people leave the industry, that knowledge of how they worked and got through problems kind of leaves with them as well. So it's really nice for me that we're kind of documenting what happened 
80s and 90s. But then as me as a manager in this modern day, I'm also trying to also remember not to romanticize the past because a lot of things that we talked about is very easy to like gloss over all the difficult parts, which is why like, oh, and then everything came together and that's how it happened. That everyone alludes to, right? But that kind of like, okay, but what actually, what was that messy middle that happened in between? Because that helps us to kind of get over that hump. And I think what happens is because we kind of, sometimes kind of like, oh, they got through it in the end. So the expectation is we as uh, managers in this day and age can also get through in the end, given enough time to like see it beyond. But then that's why we still have persistent issues because then the issues aren't resolved. You know mm. what I mean? We just like, oh, we got through it. So let's just move on to the next thing. And then the issue will come out again, but oh, we got through that. Yeah. So as a result, arts managers are perceived to be quite resilient, right? <laughs> on the surface of it. Yeah. If we could revisit the whole idea of mental wellness. Hengran, would you have any thoughts about how to tackle some of the issues of mental health impact on arts managers? And in that sense, in that sense, how do we keep the knowledge? How do we keep the expertise within the industry? Wow. I, <laughs> I, well, backlog is one good effort. Good, right? <laughs> Are you breaking the fourth wall? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think uh, one, of course, sharing of knowledge becomes very important. Two, building communities is very important. Three, really rethinking about how arts personnel, I mean, people who work in the arts are being paid. And the financial to work condition has to be looked at. But yeah, at the same time, when you say that, right, you also know that in our work, it's, it's, it's slightly different from a nine to five work. And we are quite a marginalised community in a way. Quite a lot of the groups, whatever they do, are not going to be even be able to sustain themselves. So that means that we are working on actually very tight conditions. To say that, can the government provide more funding? Yes, I still think they should. I still think they should. But what I think now is that we probably have to find more different ways of making sure that this community can continue to survive. Is there only one route to be that everybody become very professionalized and being a part of the industry? I think we got to look at it in many different ways now. There are one group of people who probably can work within this industry. There's another group who probably have to think about a different kind of assemblages of existence. Then they can happen. And so in a way, is that does art finally force into a whole capitalistic system of rewarding, renumulating ourselves? Or can we think beyond that? Is there other ways of surviving that in the end, we accept who we are, but yet be able, don't have to feel as if if we want to speak to the public or you know, your family member, you feel as if you are not dignified. I think it goes back to the question of how to find, how to actually express our dignity as art maker and be able to articulate the value of what art is really about. Recently, I was reading this book. It's a mushroom at the end of the world, of the reins of the uh, capitalism. So we are really looking at the ultimately, this must be art industry. They have many various ways of actually seeing ourselves being rewarded to give us a well-being that we feel not necessarily just comforted by proper remuneration, that you could do something that you feel that you've invested your time, you invested your effort, you are remunerated, you don't have to do a lot, yet you feel that, hey, there's a lot of uh, satisfaction, not just for yourself, for the people who actually watch it. So that's one. 
The other part which I've been thinking about is, of course, what is arts manager, right? I think I've asked these questions during our session together. I was like, where do we stop in terms of arts manager? Does it go all the way to those policy makers at NEC or even at the ministry? Are they also arts makers? Then we also have to look at the remuneration between the, the arts practitioners or managers in the people sector as well as in the public sector. Are we paid the same? When we're not paid the same, then how do you address this inequality? Are we doing lesser? So how are we going to address this difference? Because in a way, currently, a lot of all these arts administrators in the ministries or even in the councils are also doing a lot of work that we should be doing or we are doing. So in a way, they are paid better than a lot of our colleagues in the, uh, in the theatre company. So how do we actually you know, sort of square that up? Mm. Yeah, and I think like for me, what you're saying also brings up my own complicated feelings about how with, with like major companies, for example, they have to be registered as an IPC or as an arts mm. charity as well because then that brings up this complicated debate about whether artists should be earning money from the art or not. And then when you talk about the professionalization of the sector, then do you then pen arts managers' rates to the same as those in the charity sector? Are we expected to kind of take a lower wage because it's like a social good? This is a lifelong question I ask myself since I started my career. And not just because I'm also an arts manager, but I think even the arts managers of today still very much work beyond the hours they're expected to because they still hold on very passionately for their jobs, right? And that's one of like the hallmarks or like in, in a way it's like a pride where like the more you work, the more you hold on to this idea of me as arts manager. It's a bit of a convoluted, like overproductive badge of honour. Absolutely. You know? I, I think you've just highlighted the conundrum, right? That a lot of arts workers, I use this term very decidedly, uh, feel because it almost feels as if you pay the price for liking your job. That's not to say that people who are in non-arts jobs do not enjoy that job. Yeah, that's, a, that's something to note. But it almost feels as if there is a bit of a penalty for having that, that passion. And at the same time, of course, you don't want to be navel-gazing. So you don't want to say, okay, my job is the most meaningful one in the world. And, and therefore, because I, I look at it with such romantically tainted eyes, then, you know, I can accept anything. At the end of the day, I think the individual exists within the ecosystem as well. It's hard to separate the two, which is why I think backlogs becomes the beginning of this discussion and this documentation of perplexing questions that continue to follow us in the arts industry. And, and I think in a way, probably if we want to work in the arts, you must understand that we cannot see art in one single lens. There are going to be many shades of what it is. So, there are some who think that you can make a good living out of arts. And that means that the kind of work that you do is going to be like that. So what we probably need to do is to have more diversity mm. in order for that to exist. But currently in a lot of conversations, it keeps going back to getting, keeps going back to efficiency, keeps going back to accountability, keeps going back. So it's sort of a limited imagination of what this could be. So then that also limits actually art workers, whether it's managers or whatever, in imagining their own possibility. And there lies in, I think, uh, for people who work in the arts quite differently from someone who work within an, an industry where it's, where it's so wedded into the whole uh, capitalist structure or post-capitalist structure, is that one of the key value of us is actually for people who work there, and if you are there enough, that one of the things that we always ask ourselves is, we keep reflecting and questioning ourselves and why we are doing this and what is it that we are doing. Because of that, 
strangely, we are never quite satisfied when we reach one point and we keep questioning what is the other possibility. I have always quoted Lu Xun as in whether artists are never satisfied with the status quo. And in a way, when we are not satisfied with the status quo, somehow we also have to take our own responsibility that whereby we are going to question ourselves a lot of time and not rest on our laurels and think that we've achieved something. But we're constantly asking, how is this meaningful? Why am I doing it? And why am I doing it? And I think we must prepare ourselves for that, for a better mental wellness. That will help us to grow and think about diversity and yet not be too caught up in and think that, no, and start comparing ourselves with other industry in other ways. And I'm not saying that we should not be valued as well as the others. We should be. Some will get this opportunity to get there. Some will not, just like in any industry. Except that the product of art is much more heterogeneous than a lot of other products that are out there. So maybe Heng Luan, as we're talking about like some of the pain points that are still persistent today, maybe we could talk a little bit about what pay and salary was like since this was the period of time where we we're trying to professionalize the arts manager. I remember when I was working in MCD, actually I could afford a weekend car, a pay installment. Lah. Then I joined the substation. I had to take a pay card. I have to give up the car. Then, then subsequently when I joined TNS, I think that was a pay card. I think when you work in the theatre, especially in the earlier years, it, it could be really difficult. I think some freelancers are still experiencing it. They kind of, you have that little money inside your bank, right? So in that particular month, if you withdraw a certain amount, you can't use up the rest of the money. So I think you really have to watch out. Do I withdraw $20 or $50? No, Because you may have left another $10 which you can't withdraw because at least $20 must be inside the bank. So these are the things you actually manage to the cents, you know, dollars and cents uh, when you try to survive during those times. That was an interesting one also because according to the Straits Times article from 16 December 1995 called Arts Career? So-so prospects by Kobun Pin. So Heng Luan, your parents felt that TNS offered no job prospects to you. What did they actually say? I think, first I think uh, they really thought that working in the arts is like playing a masa-masa. So in a way, it was like, have you played enough? <laughs> mm. <laughs> yeah. So it was also like, it's not a stable job. Go and work in, in, in the government department. Since now you're in the arts, okay, I'll go and join the arts ministry, lah, whatever. That offers more stability. And I think my dad, until when she, he was, you know, he had dementia and you know, sometimes he would just look at me and say, uh, are you going to quit your job? Somehow in his dementia, he never forgot that. So I, what I did was to tell him, which I think is an interesting thing, was that I told him, actually your dad, I'm now running a, a organization that has a turnover of about a million. That sounds good, right? Uh, actually, you know, a lot of organizations now, their turnover is over 100, over 1,000, sometimes even to a million, especially those who are in a major grant. Mm. And then that sort of made him like, mm. and then he kept quiet. I think that there are ways of thinking about what you're doing. You think about yours as making art. You could also think about yourself running an organization where you do have people whom you have to take care. Mm. So during this COVID period, Drama Box had to take care of our colleagues, making sure that they continue to be able 
to have salaries and continue doing our work. We also start also to not to think about just our company, but those people who are working with us, uh, how do we create additional job opportunities for people in the uh, who are freelancing to actually continue to survive during this uh, difficult time. So I think that we start to think also as managers you know, or people who run the, uh, who runs the arts that you are not just taking care of uh, your artwork, but the artwork involves human beings and people. Mm. How you take care of human beings and people. Taking you out of that silo as mm. well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you think that this period that we're in, suppose we gave it a name, okay? Let's say we call this constraints. Let's say we call this rigidity. Let's say we call it lack of funding. Let's say we call it high inflation rate. Let's call it arts workers are the least essential in society in a poll that was done in 2020. This elicited a lot of very strong reactions on social media, of course. Let's say we give all these sort of placeholder names for this period of time. Is this actually the best time for creativity? Is this actually the best time for artists and arts managers to take back the responsibility of creativity? Can we quote Charles Dickens in Tales of Two City? This is the best time, this is the worst time, right? This is the best of times, this this is is the worst worst of of times, yeah. There's constraints. There's a lot of things being placed because the system has been there and they have become more and more nuanced, the systems. And so we actually spend a lot of time trying to gain the system, right? I think if you have talked to uh, deeply with uh, industry, uh, with managers, they'll be talking about how they work with the numbers, various things. But just now, I think Shalin mentioned about working with limitations and sort of remind me of what Paukun would always say that, you know, think not as working with restrictions, working limitations. That means you can push that possibility. Restrictions are really tell you what you can't do. Limitations says, well, there's certain limitations, but that doesn't mean that we can't do certain things, right? Well, there will be going to be some difficulties around the way, but we may think of creative solutions. I think probably we need to, at this moment, we really need to rethink about how this ecosystem is going to move. I do think that the current policies are so occupied with trying to see how to manage these companies, like major grant and things like that, that the policies are not forward-looking enough for us to imagine how the art scenes can be like in the future, whereby freelancers will be taking will be the most important thing, as important as some of the important data companies or organizations around. How do we actually create a system or a kind of viable, sustainable system whereby this community develops itself to learn how to actually manage themselves. So my proposition is still give back the spaces to organizations, appoint organizations outside of government-related corporations to run this space. Let them learn the hard way, the challenging way, the difficult way. And then take this opportunity for the arts community to appeal to our public, which is the other part of our imaginations. We have been talking about our own imaginations of who we are. We need to talk about the public imaginations of who we are 
and realize their imaginations or bridge their imaginations and bring them into that conversation. It's going to be a very hard one, not the easy one. But substation has indicated at some way, some point, we could do it. In a way, Esplanade, that has so much support from the government, but they seem more autonomous, slightly more autonomous in some way in their program selection. But you do see the public going there to support them as a venue. Can't that happen with another independent, two or three more independent-run venues not run by the public, by the people sector, and let the people sector have that capacity. And the government, I'm not saying the government, you're not supposed to support. You continue to support them to grow instead of continue to develop your role of just being a custodian or even being someone to check on these groups. Mm. And I think for me, like, I actually have more positive reaction to where we are in this age right now for me. Like, I think what A. King mentioned in his, in the podcast episode 7 was, and in the thing that's seen at least, is, is that we've gotten a lot more, I think, organised together and there's a lot more community working together. And that also makes me think, like, in the theatre scene, for example, there's a lot more organisation happening in terms of, for example, I think there was the care and intimacy group who are looking into the policies a bit more into how do we kind of show care to each other in the scene. And then you also have the Better Practices Research um, paper that was put out. And I think as arts managers, it's important for us to keep use these as like ways to keep our ears to the ground, to look of how we can reimagine what our space looks like as we develop and produce better shows or look at the, the capability development as well. I think in some ways, like, yes, it's overwhelming because there's so much to do, but in other ways, it's also really exciting because there's still that space to grow and experiment where there is no limitation because it's also new. And I think having the internet has also made us more aware of what's happening in other spaces so that we can see how it works in the Singapore context to develop that further. I think what is interesting for me is the fact that there are a lot of young practitioners and young arts managers. Maybe they do not go by that label yet, arts managers, or they don't realise they're doing the work of many of the arts managers, starting their own little outfits. This could be because they do not find a possible opening in the more established companies or outfits. And to some extent, I, I think it's also because maybe they do not um, necessarily inherit the kind of baggage, the kind of the, the kind of struggles that have come beforehand, and that can be a good thing. So in that sense, they go in with very fresh eyes. So it will be interesting to see what the space looks like, especially because there's that intersection between the training that they receive in some of these art schools and social media, as well as this renewed look at how to engage the public and even arts marketing, right? Some sort of marketing as well. So that to me is where some of the diversity is coming in. In terms of professionalization, I think for myself, I've seen that because it was quite hard in the growing years for a lot of the more established companies to, in a way, get the company running and getting the shows to fulfill, right, certain grant obligations and policy guidelines and things like that. I think what is a slight shame is that it does appear that a lot of times arts managers might be working in silo. And as a result, those experiences, those best practices may not necessarily be passed down to the newer arts managers, the newer arts workers that are coming up. So it remains to be seen how that succession planning or that succession journey will happen in Singapore. Um, Heng Luan, just want to ask you after listening to the various episodes, do you have a favourite? Did any kind of resonate with you? Did any episode resonate with you more than the others? Well, 
I would say that there's one episode that really makes me think a lot about leadership, which is episode six, talking about Henrik Anua and her interventions and her charisma and how she imagined all this possibility and bringing people together. It's so interesting because though she works in the National Library, but you look at the way she operates, it's almost like she was a leader amongst this group of librarians. And I remember this quote, or this sort of saying that, you know, the librarian creates world, a world. And in a way that leadership also creates a kind of a world for us to enter into the thing. And if you look at it in parallel, then you also look at during that time, whether it was Pao Kun, whether it was TNS or, or the other works, they were leading a, a process of actually energizing the scene. And they, they, in a way, I always say that you know, some of our practices there are actually you know, a legacy of what happened previously for good or for bad, right? Some practices maybe we need to re-examine, but some practices are good and we are continuing that. But they were definitely people who were taking the lead to actually push this through. And at the same time, because there weren't too many people taking the lead, it's easier to find the directions and to be articulate you know, how it moves. What is interesting now is that it is difficult to see it in that way, uh, especially in theatre, because now many people, are, each of us are doing so-called our what we want to do. But you know, over the last few years, for example, you look at the literary scene, you do see some movers. And it's important to then look at how these movers move and learn from there, and then see how to actually leverage on it and go even further. Well, my personal feeling is actually in the two years uh, of the pandemic at its worst, we saw a lot of companies actually taking their own direction, whether it was to survive or to actually program for this sort of new environment. Some went into a bit more publishing heavy. So the scripts of everything that they've done to actually document that. And that was one way. And then, of course, there were some who really embraced the digital and really tried to go that digital way. It will be interesting in future editions of Backlogs, if we ever get there, to be able to see what were some of these uh, survival strategies that companies took. Yeah, and also maybe like a few years down the road as well, like how much has changed in the way we create and consume and engage with art because of this pandemic period as well. Mm. And I think maybe we need to start also think not in silo in terms of not just language, but discipline. I think what Serene and Shani you have also alluded in a way is that now, the idea of art has become more and more, the discipline has become more and more fuzzy, you know. We, we, we cross discipline and maybe some things will, will, will happen again. So in that same way, all these administrators or managers who are working within each of these disciplines have to think and learn languages of all this border crossing. Mm. And I think that's really not easy, but it's an interesting challenge and ought to open up possibilities for us lah. Thank you very much, Ying Luan, for being here today and sharing with us uh, your views, your takeaways. Thank you for listening to all of our episodes of Backlogs. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> our hope certainly is that many people out there will take their time and sink their teeth into Backlogs, the, the resources, as well as to lend their ears to the hours and hours of recordings that we've done with all our esteemed guests, people who are very experienced with Walk the Road and have lots to share. You've come to the end of the final episode of the pilot series of Backlogs, an arts management podcast series. Thank you very much for listening. If you'd like to learn more about any of the key events, 
people, institutions mentioned in this particular episode, head over to our website at backlogs.sg. That's B-A-C-K-L-O-G-U-E-S dot S-G to find out further information pertaining to each episode's content. You may find them under show notes on the respective pages for each of the episodes. Be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at backlogs.sg, which will be updated every time a new episode is released. Share your comments with us by tagging us at backlogs.sg or using the hashtag backlogs.sg. This first podcast series is presented by Cinefoy 2 and Singlet Station together with our researchers Dr. Hu Su Fen and Dr. Cheryl Julia Lee. It is also supported by the National Arts Council of Singapore. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.